Good morning and welcome. You know, it's like a full house in this room, so appreciate you all coming today. Today we're here to hear argument in the case of Eric J. Holcomb, Governor of the State of Indiana, as the appellant, versus Roderick Bray, as President Pro Tem of the Indiana State Senate and Chairman of the Indiana Legislative Council, Todd Houston, as Speaker of the Indiana House of Representatives and Vice Chairman of the Indiana Legislative Council, the, legislati the Indiana Legislative Council, as established by Indiana Code, 2-5-1.1-1 in the Indiana General Assembly Appellees. Counsel for the appellant, Eric Holcomb, will argue first. This is a civil appeal, appeal representing um, Governor Holcomb at council table. We have Richard Blakelock. Good morning, Mr. Blakelock. And John Tremble. Good morning, Mr. Tremble. And we also have Michael Hevelin. Good morning and welcome, Mr. Hevelin. Welcoming the appellees at council table, we have Thomas Fisher, good morning, Solicitor General Fisher, and Melinda Holmes. Welcome, Melinda Holmes. Council, are you ready to proceed? As we have been conducting oral arguments, each side will have approximately two minutes to argue before we may start asking questions. All right, Mr. Blakelock. May it please the court. It's my privilege to be here today on behalf of Governor Eric J. Holcomb to ask this court to conclude that certain provisions of HEA 1123 are unconstitutional. Your Honors, there is no disagreement among the parties or the trial court that from 1816 through 1851 until 1970, only Indiana governors had the authority to call special sessions of the legislature. Nothing about that special session authority changed in 1970. The 1967 study commission proposed precise language that would unquestionably have given the legislature the power to call special sessions, but it did not adopt that when it proposed amendments to the 1970 Constitution. They did not adopt that because it was not their intent to make the wholesale changes to the ability to call sessions that the legislative parties and the trial court found. Instead, the two things the amendments changed in 1970 were, number one, it gave the legislature the, the, the option, if it wanted to, by law, to set sessions every year instead of every other year. That decision was then left by law to the legislature. The second thing it did is it allowed the legislature to fix the length of those regular sessions by law and also special sessions by law because Article 4, Section 29's mandate of the length of those sessions was deleted in 1970. Nothing else changed. To be clear, Governor Holcomb is not here saying that it's good or bad public policy to have the dual ability of the legislature and the governor to be able to call a special session. It may be, it may not be. But that question is left for a proper constitutional amendment for the decision to be left to the voters of Indiana through that process. And because HEA 1123 circumvented that process and tried to give the legislature authority to do so through ordinary legislation, it's unconstitutional. Mr. Blakelock, before you get too far into the merits, would you explain why the governor has standing in this case? How is he aggrieved by 1123? Well, most, most concisely, uh, Justice Slaughter, because his constitutional authority has been abrogated by a statute, and we believe... I'm not sure I understand that. I mean, he could call a special session today, couldn't he? Correct. There's nothing about 1123 that prevents him from doing that right right away. So, well, so, so how is he impaired? How is he harmed? 
Well, he's harmed because it's, it's his constitution. The Constitution is harmed, I should say, because the legislature dispatches a statute in abrogation of, of the Constitution. And, and that's the harm. He happens to be, in this instance, the uh, constitutional officer whose power in, or function in this situation has been abrogated by a statute, which, you know, th this court's case law for going back to 1822 has said it's for the court to decide if a statute's abrogated a constitutional uh, power, and we believe that this statute does so. And because it impacts his particular function, he has standing to seek relief. But counsel, how, how is his power to summon um, undermined by the legislature's uh, ability to gather? I'm not sure I understand the question. Well, I mean, the new, the new law gives the legislature the ability to gather of its own volition. Um, 4-9 gives the governor the power to summon them in times of emergency. How is that power to summon undermined um, by this new legislation? Well, it, it gives the legislature the authority to call a session, which it doesn't have. I mean, if looking at the, the function of calling is executive in nature, it is not self-executing under the Constitution. All constitutions, uh, other than 11 initially, vested that authority solely in governors. It's an executive function. And so when you give that function by statute, and that's, the, that's what I was getting to earlier, by statute, it's a problem. It's, it's totally fine. And 30-plus states have given that authority to the legislature by constitutional amendment. Kentucky seems about to be another state. Would you agree that your strongest argument on standing is looking at standing under the Indiana Constitution as a threshold issue, and you have alleged that the governor has exclusive authority to call a special session, and that was, at, that was abridged by uh, 1123? Yes. I, I don't think we have to wait for, the, for, the, for that harm to man itself, manifest itself in some future way that as yet we, we don't know. I, the, but if we disagree with you on the merits uh, about whether the, the legislature has violated the Constitution, does the governor's standing turn on the merits or is there some basis for saying he has standing regardless of what the merits may be? I think he has standing regardless of the merits because I don't think you have to be the prevailing party. But, but your standing argument presupposes that he's been harmed by this violation of the Constitution. And my point is if we say that there's no constitutional violation, where does the, what's the basis for standing? He's alleged a constitutional violation. And what's the authority that the allegation alone is good enough? I think we can go back to uh, all the court cases in which, for example, Tucker v. State, where the, the governor was a, a plaintiff in that case, filed a declaratory judgment and asked for an injunction based on a constitutional harm. If, if the court, as we know, it's a very lengthy opinion, went through and analyzed the issue. I don't think if, if the court had concluded, well, he's wrong, so he doesn't have standing, that uh, the, the court would have avoided that decision. I think we, it's the fact of the, the allegation of the constitutional harm paired with, with all due respect, this court's function of deciding whether a statute's uh, infringed on a constitutional authority that gives the governor standing. And, and, and I would, no, Excuse me, please. Please finish. No, that, that's... Are you sure? Yeah, I am. Yes. Thanks. If you prevail on the merits issue, what's, what's the... Uh, Alternatives. So what's the solution for the legislature if, if they don't like that outcome? Uh, what, what can they do to accomplish maybe their intended purpose differently? Well, number one, they could pass a constitutional amendment. As I mentioned, the 11 states started out with this. We're now into the mid-30s, about to have another one, where, where the, the legislature, through self-executing language in a constitution, has the ability to call itself into session because when it's out of session, it has no legislative authority to do that. So that's one solution. The other solution is, you know, the, the particular, uh, I mean, the, the legislature dictates what's in the Emergency Powers Act on which the governor uh, 
issues executive orders. It can change those authorities if it wants to. I mean, that's the other way that it could do that. But the primary way, if it wants the ability outside of, of, of uh, you know, this emergency setting to call itself into session, is to amend the Constitution. But you would agree that under the amendments in 1970, the legislature could just keep itself in session, and then if special emergencies come up, they'll deal with them then, correct? They could keep themselves in, in session year-round. They did, did so for the first time last You know, year. in looking at the argument that you made to the trial court, um, you know, you, you, this argument wasn't as strongly made, but it might be a narrower argument with regard to looking at the language in 1123 and what is appointed by law and what does fixed by law mean. Um, tell me if those two things are different, and if you think where the constitutional violation would be in 1123 based on the plain meaning of those terms. Sure. They are different. Appointed. Uh, so did you say they are or not? They are different. Uh, there's, there's a different significance to them. We start uh, it, looking back to the Benton County uh, case in 1946 and the Noble County case in 1955, where this court says by law means to fix by legislation. So presumably, when the legislators framed the amendments in 1967 and 1969, they knew that that was a law. They chose the word fix. Fix means immovable. So that's part of the problem with 1123 is there's this conditional date to call a session. A point doesn't have that rigidity, uh, the same rigidity as fix. And, and yes, we think that the choice of, of words is significant. Uh, under that plain reading, under what you're saying is a plain reading of what it means by fixed by law, it can't be we're going to let you decide the date and time of it, the Legislative Council. Does that, do we also need to address the constitutionality of the technical sessions? No, Your Honor, I don't think so. I mean, the, the, the way to reconcile those without getting into the constitutional question is to conclude that a technical session is, is a furtherance of a, of a regular session. It's tethered to it. And we, we know that, first and foremost, from Indiana Code 1133, where the legislature itself said if we pass a law in a technical session, it shall be considered passed during a regular session. But if I'm a voter going into 1970, I'm voting on this, and I'm saying that the legislature has given their authority to call themselves in on any sessions, and it was plural, and that may be relevant, I'm thinking they've got the ability to call themselves in when and where they want. Well, I, I would respectfully disagree because the question the voters were asked made no mention at all of special sessions and it, it said sessions it just said sessions but it didn't say regular sessions it used the plural sessions well it, it's you're talking about the text of the constitution or the, the question the voters were asked because i think it's a little the text of the constitution says sessions it, it does and and it always said sessions in the first sentence from day one from 1851 through the present that has never changed and, and, and interest, excuse me, interestingly, there are only two types of sessions. There's a regular session and a special session. There aren't any other types of sessions. And we know this because if we look at Article 5, Section 14B, which is the impeachment provision, it's specifically in terms of timing of when the legislature can meet to overturn a veto, refers and says it's regular, the next regular session after the regular or special session at which the legislature was passed. That was done in 1990. If there were a third type of session that happened in 1970 or the potential for another type of session, it would have kept the wording the same, the sessions, to contemplate all sorts of sessions. Counsel, I'd, I'd like to explore the plain meaning of the word frequency, which appears at the end of 4-9. Of, uh, it seems the, the plain meaning of that would mean how often. But you seem to argue that what it, it's confined to a choice 
between annually and biannually. And, and explain to me how you come to that conclusion. Certainly. Um, first of all, the legislative history surrounding the passage is, is abundantly clear that what the, the uh, framers were, were uh, wrestling with was whether to put themselves into annual session or biannual session. They even proposed in 1970 to, to, to make it dictate that it would be annual session. That was the 1967 report, which didn't make it. So, so looking at all the context around what was happening then, that was the public debate. So we start there. The second thing is... Well, don't you, I mean, don't you have to find ambiguity first before, you, before we start down, um, you know, sort of the path of, of construction? I mean, you're, you're arguing that, that frequency here is ambiguous, that it can't mean how often. No, I, I do believe it means how often. But, it, but, it, but the question is, in what context? The first sentence, if we look at the text, well, I would, I would, I mean, my reading of, it, obviously the court would know better than I, but my reading of the court's uh, recent jurisprudence on constitutional interpretation is that legislative intent is the pole star of figuring out the intent, of, or the framer's intent is the pole star of figuring out the meaning of the, con the intent of the provisions. But even looking at the text, it, the first sentence was added each year. I mean, really what happened was, in, the, in 1970, the mandatory biennial provision was excised from the first sentence. The third sentence filled that void, said, Here's, are you going to meet freak annually or biannually? Because they use the word each year in the first sentence. If it was each month, each quarter, whenever you want, that language would have been chosen. And I think so textually, as well as the historical context, supports the proposition that it's annual or biannual, and that's the decision that the legislature intended in 1970. That can be a little tricky, can it? I mean, I think your briefing is outstanding and that of the historians as well. I think it's it, it, a good argument is to be made that um, in 1851, after the legislature had spent us into bankruptcy, uh, there was a feeling that we, we should curb their appetite by limiting how often they can meet. Certainly, uh, you argue that in the, in the mid-60s, um, an attempt was made to explicitly give the legislature this power. That failed. But then later they, they landed on this language that simply talks about frequency. Isn't it possible um, that uh, the drafters of that language uh, had this possibility in mind? And, and isn't that the fact that we have to speculate about that um, uh, perhaps a, uh, cautioning us to simply uh, look at the explicit plain meaning of the language? I don't think so, Your Honor, and, and, and here's why. Number one, the power, and, and they, the, the drafters knew that the power to call into session has to be self-executing, because when the legislature, and by that I mean there has to be express language like, that, that they proposed that said the Speaker of the House and the Senate pro tem, if they find uh, that the public welfare requires it, and after they consult with the governor, can call a special session. And the reason that that's necessary is because at least for the most part, and it's not necessarily, but for the most part, when the need to call such a session arises, the legislatures are out of session. When they're out of a constitutional session, they have no more authority than I do to pass a law. And so the language has to be self-executing. And if you look at all the 30-plus states that have these provisions, that's how they do it. And they knew how to do it in 1967. They proposed that language and, and didn't uh, follow it. So I, I, I respectfully don't think it is a reasonable conclusion to think they knew how to do it. They put in this frequency clause as a way to let it lay dormant because there's certainly no evidence that after it passed, 
anywhere in any of the media, the, the newspaper, the legislative reports at all. So I, I think all of that together suggests that they, they didn't have an, uh, an intent to, by implication, give themselves this authority. If the uh, 1123 is, is upheld, what, what, uh, what happens if the governor does not seek special session, call a special session, declare an emergency? Uh, what, what, what options does the legislature have under 1123 in that circumstance to convene? Well, they can, they don't. I mean, well, let me back up. If, the, if it's an emergency, if the governor has called an emergency, they have the, they, under that statute, they right. have the statute. If the governor right doesn't call an emergency, 1123 would not apply. It wouldn't, it wouldn't engage, that is correct. And, and consequently, you would have, you would default to, as far as the, the, the session of legislature, whether it's a short session or a long session. In, in, in your opening comments, and, and, and I think through your arguments and in documentation, correct me if I'm wrong, that, that um, it's your position that, that not only is this portion of 1123 unconstitutional, but you, you seem to concede that, that if the governor uh, declares an emergency, if the governor were to convene a special session, would the legislature have the opportunity to determine constitutionally the length of that special session? Yes. Yeah. So, so they could call, they could say it's one day, or they could say it's 365 days. But your point is they can't cause it to happen. It's, it's an executive function. They're, they're not the trigger. Correct. And, and, and that's where the, there's a difference of, of view between us and the legislative parties. It's an executive function. It's never been, uh, other than those 11 states, the majority that that's a uh, legislative function. And our Constitution, unlike some others, makes that crystal clear because it gives the governor the ability to call the session, but it gives him no other authority thereafter. A lot of these provisions say, and the governor shall set an agenda, and that will be the agenda. And, and uh, I think maybe one or two of them allow the governor to set the length. But that is a legislative function. There always has been. The length, uh, how long the legislature is going to stay in session, as well as what their agenda is. So it is, it's a very narrow authority, and that's to call the legislature together and cloak them with the constitutional authority to pass a law. So, yes, you are correct and, uh, that the governor, other than calling, uh, does not have the authority to set the agenda. They could uh, hold one for one. I think it has to be three days for a constitutional session, perhaps. When you, but well, when I look at those other states, and you look at it, it was 11, um, I think it was 11 or 14 states at the time, the, the 1970 uh, constitutional amendment that allowed for special sessions, and now it's grown to about 35 states have, led, have made a constitutional amendment. None of those states had this provision that we had, that we find in the Indiana constitutional amendment that allows the legislature to set the length and frequency of its sessions. That's a difference. It is a little different. Uh, most of them, um, I mean, if you look at Wisconsin, the um, legislature can set the uh, session by law, it's much broader, and, and I think ours is significant because it sets length and frequency, but not calling. And again, we're, we're getting down to this narrow point. And, and Your Honor, a lot of those uh, provisions have the legislature, a fair amount of those, have the legislature making the decision to call a special session and then having the governor execute on it, requiring the governor to do that, which is further support that that's an executive function. 
But the difference between the Wisconsin uh, amendment, it has to, they have to, while they're in session, set the date and the time. And this, you allow a legislative council to adopt the state and time. Which, which we think is, a, is an independent problem because Article uh, 4, Section 1 says that the General Assembly shall pass law. Uh, this, the third sentence requires this to be by law, which they, I would respectfully submit that the framers Does the knew. joint resolution passed by both houses, um, does that constitute by law? In which context? In any, if it would be a joint resolution, if before they adjourned, they had a joint resolution and it didn't go into a bill signed by the governor saying that they could call themselves in for one week each month for the rest of the year. I don't think that would be, uh, would constitute a law. I mean, the, the so your position would be a joint resolution passed by both houses is not enough to satisfy the bylaw under the Constitution. Correct. I understand the issue of the technical sessions, and that's, that's a little bit of a, a nuance there, but I, I would suggest that that doesn't start a new session. And again, sort of coming back to first principles, all we're, the, the actual narrow authority we're talking about here is the ability to call the legislature in session in a way that cloaks them with authority to pass laws. Maybe not now, but maybe we'll come back and rebuttal. I would like to talk to you about the Declaratory Judgment Act and your, um, and Boatwright, how you feel that what you think that carve-out is, how you want us to read Boatwright with regard to saying that the governor's constitutional officer can, can bring this claim. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Counsel. <clears throat> General Fisher. Thank you, Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Uh, the Governor disclaims both practical harms justifying this case and injunctive relief that would prevent the legislature from meeting. Now, the end of the COVID public emergency crystallizes what the Governor stresses in any event, which is that he objects to the mere abstract existence of HEA 1123 and not to its actual operation. We have a name for what the Governor is demanding here. It is an advisory opinion, which this Court has said time and again it has no power to issue. Even to reach the merits, the Court would have to ignore or negate multiple procedural barriers, injury for standing, legislative immunity for legislative acts, <coughs> declaratory judgment act restrictions, political questions doctrine, and the Attorney General's authority over litigation. The Governor would sweep aside all of these hurdles just because he is the Governor and nothing can thwart his demand for judicial recognition. No law supports that view. As to the merits, HEA 1123 does not limit the governor's authority. Uh, it does not abrogate it, as, as my friend suggested. It merely enables the legislature to meet if the governor calls a statewide state of emergency. The governor says the legislature cannot, without his invitation, meet more than once a year. But the legislature has been doing that for decades, both on our organization day and in technical <coughs> sessions. By virtue of straightforward constitutional text, the legislature has control over the length and frequency of its sessions, whether regular, technical, or emergency. <laughs> Nothing in the text or history of the Constitution suggests some exclusive power of the governor is compromised here. In short, this lawsuit is procedurally barred and meritless, and judgment for the defendants should be affirmed. I welcome the Court's questions. Council, 1123 allows a 16-member legislative council to set by resolution the date time to fix the date time. I'm struggling with that. Sure. If it's fixed by law, it's not that you would agree that by law is not what the legislative council, they, they don't That's have the authority right. to fix anything Agreed. by law. Agreed. But how do you define, how, do we, how are you asking us to interpret fixed by law to say that they're not fixing by law 
at the time. They're saying we're going to delegate that, and I'm right. struggling with that with regard to the constitutionality of yeah. being able to do that. Well, what they have done, they have fixed by law the circumstances in which the but legislature. Not the date, date and time. Not the date, no, but of course, as, as, as Your Honor pointed out, that, that is equally true of technical sessions. Now, I think my, my friend suggests that somehow technical sessions, I don't know, I think there's two arguments here, but one of which is they aren't really new sessions because they're somehow tethered to a, a regular session. Of course, that, I don't, that is, requires an elaboration that I don't completely understand, but the fact of the matter is a technical session is authorized by statute, the date for which is picked by resolution, which are not bills, which are not laws. But, but how does that help your argument here? That, that should just suggests technical sessions in 1123 rise or fall together. That doesn't necessarily mean that 1123 is constitutional. Oh, I take the point, and I think, I think, though, the court needs to be aware of the consequences of that decision. And if you'll bear with me, I just want to give you an example. So um, <laughs> this, this year, right after the regular session ended, the governor vetoed two bills, HEA 1211, uh, governing administration and rulemaking, and HEA 1041, governing participation in girls' sports. Now, under the governor's argument, the technical session uh, is either invalid, in which case the governor is essentially weaponizing the special session uh, power to prevent the legislature from <coughs> considering whether to even to, uh, to override those vetoes, which it strikes me as a separation of powers problem, or the technical session resumes a regular session that already concluded, in which case the governor has missed the deadline to return his vetoes to the legislature, and those bills are both now law. Nobody thinks that's the case. Nobody thinks that those bills have magically become law just because he didn't return uh, the bills, uh, even though there's a technical session coming up. Everybody realizes that the deadline for return of those bills is when that technical session starts. It's the next session, just like unmodified session. Presuming that the technical session is, is indeed a lawful session. Well, sure, but if it's, but if it's, yeah, if it's, if it's not a lawful session, then, then I think we also have problems with veto overrides and bills that have been passed in, in the past. Well, presumably the next regular session, then, is the opportunity for the legislature to consider overrides. The, pro the point is no one has ever thought that that's, this is what the Constitution means. Well, well, this issue, nobody ever thought before that the legislature could create a, an emergency session either. Mm. I mean, we're, we're, on, 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 we're uh, in uh, first, principle, first uh, issue territory. Well, yeah, for, certainly for the court, but for the, for the chambers themselves, they have understood what this Constitution means. They understood the breadth of the language. <clears throat> Consider that the, the governor's uh, argument says, well, you can only have one session every year. Well, that would negate Organization Day, the, which is the actual start of what the governor terms the regular session. And that is where the, the, the General Assembly has passed laws, um, and it has done a number of things that it, the governor would say is, are invalid because <laughs> The, that is another session that begins in the same year in which a regular session concluded. Now, the technical session statute has been around for, since 1995. The legislature saw a need then, and it has been using it uh, off and on for, you know, at various times, not every year. But no one has been concerned that somehow this is not a fixed-by-law session. So I think the experience, the expectation, the understanding and the sheer breadth of the length and frequency clause tells us what we need to know about the legislature's authority here. Well, just to the legislature's view of things, who would have standing to object to the legislature? Well, anybody, technical session that's in violation of the Constitution. I, I think anybody who's injured by a law that gets passed during that session, they could, if they're injured, they could come in and sue an appropriate defendant, and then we'd have arguments about whether, you know, uh, whether that's an appropriate thing. I mean, the injury is, is apparent, but... If we disagree with you on the merits of the constitutional yeah. question, on the, on the merits question, um, to the extent that we recognize public standing in Indiana, 
doesn't that mean that under, the, under your theory of standing that any citizen, any Tom, Dick, or Harry can bring a lawsuit challenging the constitutionality of 1123, but that the governor cannot? Um, no, I think a, a couple of things. Number one, I, you know, I, <laughs> after Horner versus Kerry, I'm not quite sure what the status of, of public citizen standing is. But in any event, the governor has not invoked that. Now, if the governor, if, if the governor wants to test whether that is a valid theory and file a lawsuit where he comes in as a citizen, not as the governor, which he has manifestly not done in this case, that raises a whole different set of questions. The governor can, you know, file a lawsuit in his personal capacity. Wait a minute. So you're saying that Eric Holcomb is governor? can't bring the suit, but Eric Holcomb as private citizen might well? Well, I think, I don't think he, I don't think he can and bring that's, it. That's an astonishing result. No, I don't think, I don't see how that's astonishing at all. Of course, when Eric Holcomb, a citizen, asserts the rights of a public citizen, that comes with all the limitations that any public citizen case would have. Now, Eric Holcomb as governor is how he's filed this case, and that carries its own sets of limitations. Now, you know, different citizens, different individuals, in different experiences with different injuries or claims, always get treated differently, depending, you know, by the law, the law applies equally, but they have different defenses and claims depending on the role that they are playing. So, so what is the constitutional authority the governor has with regard to take care of to see that the laws are? Yeah, the, the, well, first of all, the, this court um, has never understood the take care clause to be, uh, you know, that, as broad of authority as the governor suggests here. Take care clause historically is not a grant of authority. It's a restraint on authority. It's a restraint against an executive suspending the laws. Thomas Jefferson recognized as much. The U.S. Supreme Court has recognized as much. It, th that is the nature of it. And uh, this court has certainly never understood it to be an unlimited grant of, of inherent authority. Uh, and you'd have to have some kind of, if, if you, the court were to see it as a grant of authority, you still have to have some historical guidance. Now, depending on what we're talking about here, uh, you know, that historical guidance may or may not be there. Obviously, go ahead, Chief. No, you please. No. Obviously, you and opposing counsel uh, disagree <coughs> on the, the critical, you obviously disagree on the critical merits issue, the constitutionality. Uh, assume for a moment uh, uh, that your position, position fails. You, you do agree with opposing counsel um, um, that there is a constitutional amendment path uh, to accomplish what the legislature has accomplished in this legislation. Just as there was in 19, uh, 1970 and 1984, yes, of course. Um, quick question. The trial court found that the legislature is free to determine when, where, and how it means so long as it does so by law, correct? That, and so my question, if your interpretation is, is prevails, um, does that swallow the ability of the governor to... Um, call a special session, or if the governor calls a special session, can't the legislature uh, then say, uh, we, can, we can undo that in three days? I mean, isn't that the, the yin and the yang? Help, help, me, help me understand why that's not an issue. I think one of the debates that's going on here is what is the defining characteristic of a special session? The defining characteristic of a special session is a circumstance where the legislature is not in session and no law permits them to come into session. In that circumstance, if the governor thinks that a session is necessary, the governor can utilize his special session power, and no one else can. But that's it. That's the defining characteristic. Now, the, the authority of the legislature to set and fix by law its length and frequency of its sessions and to commence, when to commence its sessions, is different. It is a separate set of powers, lets the, gov lets the legislature decide when it wants to be in session on its own. It's just if it's not, and there's an emergency, and there's a need, there's somebody who can call them into session. 
That's all the special session power is. It's not a way to manage the legislature. It is a relief valve, and that's what I think the delegates even in 1850 recognized. They were constraining the legislature pretty hard to biennial sessions with, with term dates. Of course they needed to have um, a special session power because the distances were long and the means of transportation were meager. And they needed to have a way for the governor to call folks into session and to come in to meet a public emergency. It was a way to meet the gap between the sessions, the biennial gap, so that the business could be done. That's all it is. Fisher, uh, good morning. Good morning. The ability to call the legislature into session, though, um, when I'm, I'm looking um, at this, I, what I've struggled with is the governor is uh, – you know, singularly <clears throat> enabled to respond to crises, emergencies, and it, it seems to me that the, the language of the Constitution reserved this ability to call a special session, uh, recognizing that unique ability. And if his ability uh, to, to do that were abrogated and the legislature could, of its own accord, call themselves in, how is that not a violation of our, our separation of powers? Well, it's a question of constitutional text. And what we have here, it's not a, the, I don't want to suggest that it has nothing to do with separation of powers, but it's not, we don't resolve this at that high level of generality. We go into the text of Article 4, Section 9. Now, I agree, before 1970, the legislature could not have act, enacted this, this statute. But what, what do you do with Mr. Blakelock's argument that there was a specific determination not to not to consider that language uh, that, that language was not on the ballot that was not considered and it, and it very well could have been and it was by other states um, that was too meager the legislature didn't want to go that small they went big they went very big and they said we don't care if it's a special session you know we don't need to have that we need to have authority over sessions shouldn't we be more careful though when we're talking about something that's been specifically enumerated in the constitution throughout the whole history of the state i mean shouldn't we have something clearer than that like a, like an amendment i'm not sure what could be clearer than lengthen control over length and frequency of sessions that is crystal clear that is straightforward and they've never called it. I mean, so it's been sitting there, that this right's been sitting there for 50 years. Well, I don't know. I don't think that's a fair characterization, right. again, because the, it's, it's, the, it's not, you know, this specific uh, type of session with these specific characteristics right. isn't the issue. Technical and there's no constitutional acquiescence. I mean, No, no, of course not. But, you know, I, I, I struggle with that did they think it was prudent to call themselves into special sessions? And then I'm looking at in lines of Tucker versus State, yeah. where we – you know, gives us some authority. How would you argue, argue that under Tucker that says that you can't sort of imply this constitutional power and have it trump an express power? Well, the, well, number one, the express power is the length and frequency clause, which is there now, wasn't the there. I mean, that's debatable. Well, in any event, I don't know what's debatable about the text. It's there. But the point is, Tucker even recognized that the authority of the, of the governor to relocate the General Assembly, where it was going, you know, in times of crisis, was a legislative power. It was, a, it was, a, it was a, an exception that authorized the use of a legislative power. This is exactly the type of exception <coughs> that Article 3, Section 1 is talking about. You can't cross lines except where the Constitution provides. And it is the special sessions clause that is the exception. It is the exception that permits relief when there is a need. And this is inherently a legislative thing to do to schedule legislative sessions. That shouldn't come as a jarring idea. It's fairly straightforward. It's the governor that has 
the ability to call a special session when there's no other way for the legislature to meet. That's all that is. Now, I do want to. Oh, I want you to cover the, General Fisher, I want you to cover the declaratory. You make very strong statements that the governor is not authorized to right. bring a declaratory judgment action. Right, right. Well, the Boatwright case says that. It says that state officials can't bring declaratory judgment State action. officials on behalf of state agencies. That case was dealing with the fire marshal mm -hmm. bringing an action on behalf of his agency. There's an argument to made that the governor is a constitutional officer, so counter that. <laughs> We'd have to maybe expand Boatwright or narrow Boatwright, depending on. Which no, you have to either expand the statute or, or leave it alone. I mean, the statute b permits persons to bring declaratory judgment actions. And the, the governor's this a person. Hmm? The, the governor's a person <laughs> well, under the statute. Yeah, well, he's, he is an, he's coming in as official. If he comes in, going back to our earlier conversation, if he comes in as an individual, the governor not as governor, but Eric J. Holcomb individual, that's different. Boatwright is about state officials coming in as state officials. And there's nothing about the constitutional nature of the office that somehow makes the governor more of a person as defined by the Declaratory Judgment Act than some other official. There's, there's just no principled way to, to distinguish between the two under the definition put forth in the Declaratory Judgment Act. But Chief Justice Shepard in Boatwright was pretty clear in talking about the reasons why state officials on behalf of state agencies, because those state agencies themselves have authority with regard to implementation or enforcement. How do you fit the governor's authority? He doesn't, he's not acting on behalf of a state agency. He's acting on behalf of governor, of the governor. It differs for the reasons with, that laid the sort of the foundation for the holding in the Boatwright case. Well, first of all, the Boatwright case was about the Declaratory Judgment <coughs> Act and what person means. And person, as defined there, is not a government official. And being constitutional or not does not change that. Now, with respect to whatever other means there might be for a given official to seek some resolution in some circumstance, that's ancillary. The governor might have, you know, in, in a whole variety of circumstances, there might be a statute that the governor has vetoed that is overridden and that he has some enforcement authority for. And he might be able to carry out his enforcement in a way that conforms with, with his view. And maybe that gets challenged in court, maybe not. But in, if there is a challenge, then the thing gets adjudicated. But the nature of his, the constitutional nature of the office doesn't change the meaning of person in the Declaratory Judgment Act. What about the argument that the trial court made in reading trial rule 27, the MAV case, and the fact the governor's not just asking for a declaratory judgment, he also is asking for an injunction? You know, I think the only point of that case and the point of trial rule 57 is that if you can bring a declaratory judgment action, you can also ask for an injunction alongside. That's, you know, not, I don't think terribly surprising. I think that's well accepted. In our Esserman case, we said that, of course, the legislature can waive sovereign immunity. But before we, the courts, assume that it has waived sovereign immunity, we're going to require that the legislature be unmistakably clear, that it be expressed in doing so. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, the legislature certainly could have been more clear than it was in the Declaratory Judgment Act in defining who constitutes an official. There's no doubt that an agency official, the, the state fire marshal, for, for example, is, is an office, officer within the state. But shouldn't we, because of um, separation of powers and the deference that courts owe to coordinate branches of government, before we're going to say that the legislature has clearly told the governor that he can't bring suit, that they need to be unmistakably clear in defining who, who, who is a person that can bring suit and who is not? Well, I think with respect, Your Honor, that we, we've now flipped the clear statement rule on its head. The clear statement rule is define when a, a lawsuit can be brought against, against the state. 
and, you know, a declaratory judgment act that doesn't specifically provide for state the officials. The question is who can bring the declaratory judgment act? And you're trying, to, you're trying to exclude the governor from being one of those persons. He's clearly a person. Who, who so can, is the state fire marshal. So is the state fire marshal. But, 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 there's an, but we, we've said that there's, officials are not ag are, are agent. The, an agency is an official. Well, but the governor is coming in as the governor, as an official. He's not coming in as Eric J. Holcomb individual. He's coming in as an official. He just... My only point is, why should we not presume that in order, if the legislature is going to say the governor as a constitutional officer can't sue, they need to be explicitly clear in making that determination? Well, that would be a wholly new rule. Uh, that's, that's, not, that's not a rule this court has ever embraced. It's, it's certainly, uh, I think, there's no principled way to distinguish the governor as state official from, from the fire marshal in Boatwright. Um, and I think it would be, uh, I, don't, I don't understand what what doctrine of statutory interpretation would permit that kind of overlap? Well, for example, we have said in the Public Records Act that agencies, officials, are presumptively subject to the, the, the Public Records Act, the Access to Public Records Act. But the legislature has been actually explicit in saying those who are not subject to the Public Records Act include the governor. Um, why shouldn't we ex require the same kind of explicit exclusion uh, or inclusion when it comes to uh, the declaratory judgments. Well, I think I don't, look. I, I think that if if that had been the mode of if, if we were looking at this as a matter of first impression and Boatwright didn't exist, that might be a worthwhile conversation. But you'd have to overturn Boatwright to get to that result because there's no reason to distinguish between the fire marshal and the governor when it comes to a need for clear exclusion. Of course, there we're talking about the definition of person and not. Uh, office or official in any event. And that's what I think was important to the court, was that it was much more geared towards the private sector, so the private the side. If the legislature passed a law saying the governor can never call special sessions, the governor still cannot seek a declaratory, under your argument, cannot seek a declaratory judgment action. The, not, unless the stat, not unless the legislature passes a statute. But I think that we have to distinguish between the declaratory judgment act there and injunctive relief. Now, there's a couple of things I think that, 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 that fall together here. In that circumstance, if the, if the governor says, comes into court and says, I want to, to call a special session, the legislature doesn't permit me to do that, and, um, you know, I want an injunction, well, that's different. That's, not, that's, that's the court's inherent equi equitable power. There's a, still a separate question about legislative immunity that if he sues the legislature, you know, whether he can do that in that circumstance or whether there's some other appropriate defense. He could get the injunction, but not the declaratory relief saying the the uh, legislature does not have the constitutional authority to tell me that I can't call a special session. Well, the injunction would be the relief, and the relief would be predicated on some rationale. I don't see that there would be much need to, to, to bother with the distinction. I think here you've got two sources of a potential cause of action, Declaratory Judgment Act and the Court's inherent equitable power. Declaratory Judgment Act is put off limits by uh, Boatwright. The injunctive relief, number one, the governor seems to disclaim, although I confess it's somewhat unclear about that, but in any event, that is barred by legislative immunity because he would be seeking to interfere with the legislature's ability to meet and its inherent oper its, its operations as legislators. So that's a separate overlay. Before the legislature created the Office of Attorney General in 1855, where did the res reside the power um, of the executive to bring uh, to bring an action in the name of the state or on behalf of the state? There was a statute that the legislature enacted in 1852 that permitted the governor to hire counsel. So I think that tells us what, you know, is a sort of one of the foundational building blocks that ultimately led to the SENDAC decision, which is that there wasn't inherent authority. There was a statute that authorized the governor to do something in that regard. In, under the 1816 Constitution, where did that power reside? 
you know, I don't, I, I, I don't know that there, I don't know the answer to that. Why does the existence of the 1852 Constitution compel the result that there is no inherent uh, constitutional power in the governor? Why does it simply say the legislature recognizes that the governor has this authority? And I'm sorry, what, what, what power are we we're, we're, I'm, I'm talking, to be, let me be specific. I'm, I'm talking, of course, about the, the, the legislature's argument that the governor doesn't have the attorney general's consent, so for a lot of reasons he can't bring this. Right, suit. right. And, my, my, and, and that argument presupposes that, the, that before the office of attorney general was created, the, the governor, could, governor couldn't make, exercise that power independently. It's not part of his inherent constitutional authority. Right. And I want to know what's the basis for that. Well, I mean, I think that everybody, there's obviously common historical understanding, which is why the, the, the legislature passed the statute in 1852. And, and, of course, furthermore, SENDAC has resolved this issue. And I don't hear a call from the governor to overturn SENDAC. There's a, an effort to try to distinguish it, but, it, it, you know, SENDAC is, is the law and has said that the governor's executive power, whatever else that may mean, does, is not, does not sweep within it the power to, to litigate. The attorney general has that power given, as given by uh, the General Assembly. What about 4-3-1-2? It says... The governor may employ counsel to protect the interests of the state in any matter of litigation. Also addressed by Sendak. Also addressed by Sendak. Sendak said that that was subsumed within the later statutes, uh, giving the the, uh, the attorney general the authority to litigate on behalf of the state. So the governor could never sue the attorney general. it's hard to think that that, uh, that that would ever happen, not as governor, no. Of course, and there's no reason we should be surprised by any of this. this. The whole point is to put the attorney general in the position to reconcile the, and harmonize these differing legal positions. This court recognized that in Sendak and in, and in the toll road, toll road case against Minor. This is part of what it means to have an attorney general, is to centralize litigation decisions in one office. So the attorney general would, would decide the dispute that the five of us are hearing today? Um, well, I think there's a couple of things going on there. Number one, to characterize it, if we assume that there is a genuine legal dispute, it, it, there are ways for that to get into court. It's not that the Attorney General decides for all purposes and all times and all circumstances constitutional questions. It's a matter of if there are state officials that disagree about the law and they want to, to litigate about it, the Attorney General gets to reconcile the state's legal position. Now, there are ways for, other, for state officials to do their jobs based on their understanding of the law without the Attorney General having any kind of, 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 of say in that. What we're talking about here is very limited, very narrow. What is the state's position in court? But that, in Sendak, the governor was attempting to hire outside counsel to represent a state agency. And the law is still on the book. So if, if we, we've got a statute saying that the governor can hire outside counsel, you're saying that by a judicial opinion we can override the, legis- the clear legislative wording? No, Sendak, of course, was looking at that, at that same statute. And it, there was no disagreement but that the statute on its face. But the governor wasn't representing himself. He didn't hire counsel to represent himself, and that's what the statute lets him do. In Sendak, the governor was hire, hiring someone to represent a state agency. Yeah, the, in Sendak, the court did not say that that statute on its own would have no significance. It said that that statute was implicitly overridden by later statutes. But then after Sendak, the um, legislature modified that statute. And I'm sorry, what you're referring after, to? After Sendak. Which, what modification? They, they modified 4312. It might have been a perfunctory modification, <laughs> but it was still on the yeah. books. Well, that's interesting. And that's, of course, you know, a highly formalistic uh, uh, analysis of what happened. But let's, let's actually take a look at that, that bill in, in 2016, which changed the uh, gendered pronouns into non-gendered uh, names, like, you know, it went from he to governor, et cetera. 
Well, that also, when, if you go through that same bill, it also did the same thing for attorney general for statutes that authorize the attorney general to, to bring and defend cases in the name of the state, including 4616 and 4621. So, you know, if you want to go down to that hyper-technical level, it's still later enacted because it's farther I'm, down I'm the bill. I'm struggling with the, the language of this law that's still on the books. The governor may employ counsel to protect the interests of the state in any matter of litigation. Still on the books in Sendak, too. And there's no, again, we go back to the, is, why is there a reason to distinguish between uh, the governor hiring a lawyer for the governor versus for a state agency? The reasoning of Sendak does not permit that distinction. There's no principled way to distinguish between the two cases. So as a practical matter, just to clarify a related point, if the governor, your interpretation, refuses to declare a state of emergency, then there's no 1123 right. That's right. So an, an unfortunate event occurs in the state of Indiana, and, and 11 counties are devastated by a tornado, and the, the governor... Um, and the state is able to navigate that without a state of emergency, um, the legislature uh, can't convene. That's correct? That, not under HGA 1123. Yeah. Uh, suggesting it can convene some other method? If it's no, no, I just I okay. want to make sure. So, so 11 counties are devastated uh, by, by tornadoes, and the governor declares a state of emergency, uh, thus triggering your interpretation of 1123. Uh, the legislature could, could uh, convene some sort of uh, emergency session uh, so we have uh, a point-counterpoint as to the disaster relief and, and who should do what and how much sure. and how often, mm -hmm. and, and, and that yin and yang would, would, would continue in the tornado relief or the flood relief or, or some other uh, devastating regional or, or localized disaster. Yes, as, as it does today with the legislature's authority over the governor's emergency powers. Look, th this is a representative democracy. We like it when, when our legislators come together and, dissolve, and resolve hard questions. We like it when they debate these things and come up with statewide solutions. That's the, that's the system we have. Well, it is, isn't it? But, I mean, I'd still go back to my original question. Something uh, that prompted this is a particular emergency but what about the future emergency that uh, might be impacted if we were to change the very fabric of our organic law and uh, just, just discard this? Uh, well, it, it's an awfully broad question. There has been, I think, no change to the fabric of the organic law here. Yeah, but isn't that what you're asking? I mean, this is the plain language that talks about this being reserved for the, the governor. Uh, I, I, I still struggle with that. Okay, well, of course, the plain text that we're talking about is there, too, the, the length and frequency. Now, you know, the, whole, the idea that somehow there is a special offense to the order of the state of Indiana because the legislature would meet in July rather than in January, I don't, I don't understand that. The, the, whatever future public emergency may arise, it might occur when the legislature is not in session. It might occur when the legislature is in session. And part of the problem with the governor's position is this highly formalistic exercise where he wants to prevent them from doing in July what they could already do in November or January. Uh, the, the constitutional executive. Well, I think that, that again, we get back to then to the definition of agency. What you know, what, what is the extent of the attorney general's authority? I mean, but by way of example, vis-a-vis well, -vis that of the governor. If, if, the, if the attorney general says we're going to sue 
pick a defendant, the tobacco industry, anybody else, and the governor says, the hell you are, you're not, you, you don't have my authority to do that, who wins? Well, I think that's an interesting question. It's not before the court, obviously, but, my, but I would suggest that that gets to the issue of what is legal policy versus public policy and what is the extent of the attorney general's authority on either front. And that's an unexplored, as I understand it, uh, uh, that's an unexplored area. I mean, it, the, the problem is essentially highlighted, in my view, is you can't — I mean, first of all, the attorney general has taken the position in the taxpayer case that was filed in this that the taxpayers don't have standing. So they don't have standing. We don't have standing. We don't have access to the court. The, the, the result is the attorney general decides the issue effectively because he believes that HA 1123 is constitutional. At the same time, the legislature passes, has a statute, 2393 and 2392, that says they don't have to go to the Attorney General to ask for permission if they get sued. That, in my view, is a separation of powers problem. Thank you, Your Honors. Counsel, on behalf of my colleagues on the Court, outstanding. Outstanding advocacy, outstanding briefing. And for the young attorneys in here, this is how it should be done. So thank you for the time and effort you put in to bring us um, this case. The research, the amicus brief, thank you for that. Um, we will be discussing the case and issuing it in due course. Oral argument is adjourned.